Israel gets their final report card. Those mean old Christians want to expel gay kids from your school. And Colin Buchanan has a new album. My name's Tom Abib, and you're listening to The Word Grows. Welcome to The Word Grows. We're going to be jumping into John chapter 12 today. And for those of you uh, who operate on the school term, uh, so pretty much you know parents or church leaders, because for some reason churches operate on the school term, I never really understood why that is, why we operate on the school term. I guess a lot of people's lives kind of operate around that. But anyway, it's, it's, it's frustrating when putting together a sermon series that you have to break at school holidays. It's some unwritten rule. But anyway, you do. Anyway doesn't matter. For those whose, whose lives revolve around the school term, you would know that it is term four starting back this week. And that also means that you would know that the HSC is starting tomorrow uh, with English as the first paper. So after a year-long slog of studying, of hard work, probably procrastinating, eating too much food, stressing out, you know, it all comes down to these final exams. And then before long, the results are out and HSC students are going to see how they go. Well, in John chapter 12, today we're going to see that God's historic people, Israel, they are finally given their final grade from God. They're given their report card. They're shown at the end of the day uh, how they went in following God. And this is really the last time that we're going to hear about this group of people uh, until they're, you know, John chapter 18, baying for blood, putting Jesus on trial, getting him crucified. Um, so for 12 long chapters, God's historic people have been blessed. They've been blessed with the word, the word uh, that they've been blessed with throughout their whole existence as a nation. The word has now become flesh and has come to them. The eternal son of God has dwelt amongst them. He's been teaching them with great wisdom, shocking them with powerful signs and wonders. And they have had every possible opportunity to see who Jesus is and to trust in him. And as we reach this pivotal moment in John, we find out how they have gone. And the results are not good. Uh, So John chapter 12, verse 37, we're told, Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Now, for those who have been along for the ride, this is not any new information. In fact, we were told right in the prologue, John chapter 1 verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Okay, God came to his people and they rejected him. And when you think about it, it's it's a little unbelievable that this happened. You know, it's a little bit crazy. I mean, you know, people always say, oh, if, if only I could see Jesus, then I would believe. Or, God, if, if you would just give me a sign, then I would trust in you. But, but see, the thing is, is they had that. You know, they, they had it in spades. I mean, they spoke to Jesus face to face. They saw him raise someone from the dead with their own eyes, and yet they still didn't believe. And, and it's, it's kind of almost impossible to imagine. I, I've mentioned this before, but it's actually really important that we get this, because in our naturalist sort of materialist worldview, we think, 
okay, the, the way that I know that something is true is if I can see it. If I can't see it, it's not true. But if I do see it, it is true. What's actually stopping me from, from knowing something is simply sight. But John shows that actually when it comes to trusting in Jesus, seeing doesn't necessarily mean believing. You know, there were many people who saw Jesus in the flesh and did not believe. Uh, it also challenges the way we think about evangelism, doesn't it? Because we often think, oh, if, I, if only I could give them that kind of rock-solid piece of apologetics, or th- then they'll believe. Or, or if I could just give them this perfect logical argument or, or piece of evidence about the existence of God, then they're going to believe. Or, or if I could just impress them with how normal we Christians are, or, or how cool we are, or how, how relevant we are, then they'll believe in Jesus. And this shows, uh, actually, that's not true. Because if someone can see Jesus' miracles, if they can listen to his teaching, if they can watch his life and still not believe, then there's got to be something else to unbelief. There's got to be something behind all this unbelief that stops someone seeing the truth, staring him in the face and still rejecting it. So that's the question that we kind of am asking in John chapter 12, at the end of John chapter 12. Why is it that he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And we're really given two main reasons by Jesus in this passage as to why it is that God's historic people, the people of Israel, why they haven't believed. And the two reasons are they would not believe and they could not believe. Okay, they're the two things that Jesus shows us here, would not and could not. So the first reason that Jesus gives as to why it is uh, that the Jewish people as a whole, obviously some Jews believe because the disciples were Jewish, but as a whole, why God's historic people rejected Jesus, the first reason we're given is in verse 37. They simply would not believe. Again and again throughout John's gospel, we're given this picture, aren't we, right? Proud hearts, stubbornly refusing to acknowledge the obvious that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. You know, despite all the evidence pointing to this clear conclusion, they simply did not want Jesus to be their Messiah. And so they rejected him. Um, For some, they refused to believe that they had to be born again, like Nicodemus in chapter 3. Others, Jesus didn't fit into their kind of religious paradigm that they had constructed with their traditions and rituals and beliefs, like those in chapter 5 who didn't like that Jesus was healing on the Sabbath or calling himself the Son of God. Uh, Others were hoping for a different sort of Messiah, whether it be a political champion or a material provider, Um, And so they left in droves when Jesus suggested that actually he was going to be a suffering servant sort of Messiah, like in chapter 6. And then there were others who didn't remain in Jesus' teaching once he taught them that they were slaves to sin and needed to be freed, like those in chapter 8. And finally, then, there's the proud religious rulers uh, who just really want to hold on to their power. And so they resort to bullying, to lies, and to violence. Uh, like the Pharisees in chapter 9. And the key thing in all of this, all this rejection of Jesus that we've just seen consistently throughout John's Gospel so far, the key thing is that we need to understand people don't believe in Jesus because they don't want to believe in Jesus. Okay, They don't believe in Jesus because they won't believe in Jesus. And and, you know, for, for the Jewish people, the, the problem clearly wasn't that they didn't have enough evidence. 
or, or that Jesus, you know, maybe Jesus wasn't an engaging teacher or, or, you know, maybe their cultural background was keeping them from their faith. No, 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 clearly that is not true. The problem was simple. They simply didn't want to believe. And so in their pride, they didn't want Jesus, and so they refused to believe him. I mean, there's kind of no other conclusion you can come to. You know, when someone sees Jesus raise a man from the dead right in front of their eyes, and their conclusion is, yeah, it's it's really getting time that we kill this guy now. Okay, when, when that's your conclusion, the reason you're not believing is not because there's any genuine barrier in the way. It's simply because you don't want to believe. Okay, you won't believe. And that's exactly what Jesus says. They won't believe. And John shows that actually this isn't a surprise. It's not a surprise that God's people didn't want to believe in God's Messiah. And the reason is is because it was prophesied. It was prophesied 700 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah. And that's who John quotes. Isaiah 53 verse 1, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, it's no accident that John takes us to this passage in particular, because this is Isaiah 53, you know, from the Baba do Baba Isaiah 53, 6, bit of the Bible, okay? It's, it's the bit about Jesus dying for our sins, about how the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, how he was pierced for our transgressions. Okay, so Isaiah 53 is all about how Jesus has come to die on the cross to take away our sins, But what's happening at the start of chapter 53, we're being told that this servant of the Lord has been rejected by his people. Okay, this servant of the Lord was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering. He was familiar with pain. They're the first few verses of chapter 53 in Isaiah. It's a chapter of how God's servant has been rejected by God's people. And then Isaiah helps us to understand why that the reason he's being rejected, the reason he's being treated this way is actually because the Lord is laying on him the sins of everyone. This is actually part of God's plan, that through his servant's rejection and suffering the sins of the world, uh, he will bring us salvation. And so John, he's, he's sort of taking us to Isaiah to give us the theological lens through which we understand the Jewish rejection of Jesus, okay? The servant of the Lord was prophesied to be rejected, but this was so he could pay the punishment for our sins. And this is the the first reason that we are given for why it is that the Jews, the, the people of God in general, did not believe in Jesus. They simply would not. And it's really important that we get this right. Because understanding that the problem was that they would not believe shows that they are culpable, okay? They are guilty. And we need to get this because I think we often imagine people, when we think of people who don't believe in Jesus, we think of them in a vacuum. You know, we think of them in this sort of zone of neutrality where, you know, they don't believe in Jesus. They're not not believing in Jesus. They kind of haven't made a decision yet. They're still on a journey and we're all on a journey and it's all good and there's nothing really wrong with them. And when we think like that, we kind of turn them into the victim, the person who doesn't believe in Jesus. And and God can suddenly seem really harsh. We feel like, oh, it's, it's a bit mean of God that he doesn't accept them just because they didn't believe in Jesus. You know, maybe they didn't have enough information. Maybe they didn't have a cool enough Christian friend, or, or maybe they didn't have a smart enough Christian friend who can tell them the gospel in a really clever way. You know, and we, we kind of turn the unbeliever into the victim. But 
The Bible is really clear. We're not neutral when we choose not to believe in Jesus. Okay, we, we don't start from a point of neutrality. The Bible says we're not neutral. We're sinful. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, right? We've all turned from God. And part of that turning away from God, part of that rejecting God, is a refusal to believe in Jesus, okay? We, it's, it's, not that, it's not that we're neutral and we just haven't believed in Jesus yet. It's that we, we have a horse in this race. We don't want to follow God. And so we will not believe in Jesus. And we we reject the truth. Uh, it's what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 as suppressing the truth by our wickedness. Okay, that's what we do when we don't believe in Jesus. We are actually suppressing the truth, even suppressing the truth in ourselves, hardening our hearts so much, becoming so darkened that we don't even realize that we're doing it. But under all those layers of sin, what's really going on in our heart is I don't want to follow God, and therefore I refuse to trust in Jesus. That is why people don't believe. Okay, Romans 1, we suppress the truth by our wickedness. You know, it's, it's kind of funny because secularists and atheists, they, they often like to make fun of Christians by saying, oh, you know, you're really repressed. You're just trying to hide the truth. It's usually about something sexual or something like that. But the Bible says, actually, you guys are the ones that are really repressed. Okay, you're the ones that are trying to, to hide the truth from yourself because you don't want to face reality. You just want to keep living life your own way. You don't want to follow God. And so you're repressing the truth about Jesus. You are choosing not to believe. You will not believe, even if you don't realize it. And so I think this is really important that we don't see people uh, who, who don't believe as kind of innocent victims who have just, you know, haven't come round to, to working out who Jesus is yet. That's not true. No, we're not on the sidelines. We're not in a vacuum. We're not in a zone of neutrality. We have picked a side in our heart. And if we have rejected Jesus, if we, sorry, if we, if we don't believe in Jesus, that's because in our heart we've rejected him and we simply will not believe in him. Okay, so why don't the Jews believe? It's because they will not believe. They won't believe. Now, that's pretty radical, but it's not nearly as radical as the next thing that we're told in verse 39. So verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe. Okay, so there's movement now. They would not believe. Now we're told they could not believe. And there's a connection here. Because they would not believe... Now they could not believe. In other words, because in their wickedness they have suppressed the truth, now they are no longer able to believe. Now why is that? Why is it that in their wickedness, having suppressed the truth, they are now in a situation where they simply can't believe anymore? They are unable to believe. And to help us understand this, John again takes us to Isaiah, this time Isaiah chapter 6. So this is from Isaiah chapter 6. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Okay, so to understand what John's doing here, we need to understand a little bit about what is going on in Isaiah chapter 6. Um, Isaiah 
has been given the worst possible ministry gig in the world. Okay, He's just seen the glory of the Lord in the temple, and the Lord asks, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah you know, kind of stands up and says, me, I'll go, send me. And so he signs up for this, you know, great missionary endeavor that God is sending him on. You know, imagine he's done his four years at Moore College. He's gone to St. Andrew's Hall for six months. He's all geared up for his mission assignment from God. And God says, okay, Isaiah, I want you to go to my people. He thinks, great, Israel, can't wait. I'm going to reach Israel for Christ. Oh, but Isaiah, I've got some bad news. God says, no one's going to believe a single word that you say. Um, and as I was like, what? That's a kind of crazy plan. And God's like, yeah, that's my plan. My plan is that you go and preach, but actually no one will believe. Um, and the reason that they won't believe is because I won't let them see the truth. I won't let them really perceive and understand what I'm saying. Um, so that's the plan, Isaiah. Good luck, and I'll see you later. And that's that's Isaiah chapter 6. It's, it's a little bit crazy. Isaiah gets sent on this mission to preach to God's people, but God says, oh, and I am not going to let them uh, really understand what you're saying, because if I do, they might turn and be saved. Um, and you just kind of read that and go, what? What's going on here? This seems like the complete opposite of what you think God is on about, uh, what's going on here. And we do need to understand what's going on in Isaiah 6 to understand what's going on in John chapter 12. You see, God is judging his people in Isaiah chapter 6. Okay, This is an act of judgment on his people. And the way that God judges his people is by blinding them to the truth and hardening their hearts. Now, we need to be clear about a few things here, okay? When God says they won't understand, uh, he's not telling Isaiah, I want you to go and preach the message, but kind of mumble, you know, kind of just just uh, whisper it so that they don't really hear you. No, no, no. Isaiah is going to preach really powerfully and clearly. He, You know, the word is going to go out very, very clearly from Isaiah, okay? So it's not that God isn't actually proclaiming his word. He is proclaiming his word. Uh, So that's not what we're talking about. And the second thing is, again, God isn't just being this big old meanie uh, that's being cruel and unusual to this neutral group of people, okay? Remember, this is an act of judgment. They have blinded themselves to God's truth. They have hardened their own hearts. And in judgment, God blinds them and hardens them as well. Um, if, if you think about Romans 1, God gives them over in their wickedness to their own blindness. Okay, That's what God is doing. He is refusing to help them to see the truth because in their sinfulness they have chosen to blind themselves and harden their hearts. And so what's actually going on in Isaiah 6 is God judges his people by blinding them to the truth and hardening their hearts to the truth so that they will not accept it. Now, come to John chapter 12, and you see the same thing has happened here. That's what John is telling us. Okay, God has spoken clearly, more clearly than he has ever spoken. The word has in fact become flesh. Light has shone into darkness. And yet, the people did not want anything to do with this. They blinded their their eyes. They hardened their hearts to this truth. And in judgment, what does God do? He gives them over to their blindness. He gives them over to their hardness. He blinds them. He hardens them. 
so that they will not believe. And this is a, a, in one sense, it's a terrifying sort of judgment, isn't it? Imagine that as God's judgment on you, that he, he will make it so that not only will you now, not only now will you not believe because you don't want to, but you can't believe anymore. That's the judgment that God has on his people here. Uh, but it's a fitting judgment. Uh, in the end, God is doing nothing other than giving them what they want. He's giving them over the, to themselves, as we see in Romans chapter 1. And so this is what John now explains is going on as to why the Jews have not believed. Yes, they would not believe, but actually also they could not believe. Uh, their unbelief is, is not God failing in some way or Jesus not being a good enough evangelist. No, it's actually judgment. It's judgment on them. And uh, there's kind of a really wild verse in John chapter 12, verse 41. Um, John tells us, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now, we kind of need to just pause for a second and see how wild this claim is. Because in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw Yahweh's glory uh, in the temple. But John says that he saw Jesus' glory. Okay, so, so this is one of those clear moments where John is making a very clear claim that Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is God. Um, but, but John's saying even more than this. He's saying it was Jesus that Isaiah saw in the temple. It was Jesus that commissioned Isaiah in the temple. It was Jesus that Israel were ignoring and rejecting 700 years ago when Isaiah was sent out. And it's the same Jesus that Israel are continuing to ignore and reject now. And so what we see is is that actually the God-man, Jesus Christ, is treating his people the same way that he treated them all those years before because nothing's changed. They still will not believe. And, And really... We, we see Jesus coming as just the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 6. Now the message of the Lord really has gone out. The word became flesh. He came to that which was his own. You couldn't get it more in the face. And they still rejected it. And John says the lens you need to see that through is on the one hand their willful, um, willful disobedience in choosing not to believe. Okay, they're, they're culpable, but on the other hand, their inability to believe now because of the hardness of heart that God has given them over to. Okay, they're culpable, but they're also being judged. And that's how we view their unbelief. Um, and really, Jesus sums up chapter 12 by showing why all of this matters. Um, so he says, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. And the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Then verse 49, for I did not speak on my own, but the father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. And this is really just revision for the last 12 chapters, but it makes it crystal clear. You believe in Jesus, you believe in God. You look at Jesus, you look at God. Okay, faith is coming out of the darkness and into the light of Christ. Jesus' words lead to eternal life. That is why this stuff matters. 
And the, the opposite's true as well, verse 48. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I've spoken will condemn them at the last day. So by the end of John 12, we've got the two groups. We've got those who've rejected Jesus, uh, the group that comes to be known as the Jews, and then those who have believed in Jesus, the, the Jewish disciples. But, but we also get this strange third group in verse 42, Uh, So John says in verse 42, Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise from God. Um, So we kind of get this third group here, this group of secret believers. And John's pretty brutal with them. Um, Now, we, we need to understand that coming out for Jesus was a big deal. To be put out of the synagogue meant more than just being asked to leave church early one Sunday, um, Saturday for that matter, synagogue. Um, No, it it meant being excommunicated and not just being excommunicated from church, but from Jewish community as a whole. The whole Jewish community was built around their religious faith. And so to be excommunicated meant you were out of the community. Um, you, You were probably going to be disowned by your family. It was a big deal to side with Jesus at that point, um, to be kicked out uh, of your community and of your family like this. But John is clear that if you do this, if you choose to remain a secret Christian, even when the stakes are really high like they were back then, it's because you care more about the praise of man than the praise of God. And I think that's why Jesus goes on to remind us that if we've seen and believed in him, then we've seen and believed in God. Because to turn to Christ is to receive the praise from God. You know, it's only when we realize that, it's only when we realize that actually God is on my side if I believe in Jesus, that we're going to be willing to go outside the camp with Jesus, that we're going to be willing to endure that scorn and shame and rejection and humiliation. Uh, It's only when we genuinely believe that Jesus is the light that we're going to be willing to no longer stay in the darkness. And so there's a real challenge uh, for Christians here, I think, Uh, a challenge for for us to be open in our faith. You know, true believers are open believers. That's a question for you. You know, do the people around you know that you're a Christian or are you hiding it because you love the praise of man more than the praise of God? something to think about. But what, what do we see in the end of John chapter 12? We see kind of the, the report card for Israel. They, they still refuse to believe even after seeing all these signs. Why? Two reasons. They would not believe. They could not believe. Would not. They're guilty. It is a willful decision out of a rebellion to God that they have chosen not to believe in Jesus despite all the evidence to the contrary, but could not believe that in judgment God then gives them over in their hardness of heart and in their blinding of their own eyes. And he blinds them, he hardens them. So when you see someone who doesn't believe, you see two things. You see someone guilty in their unbelief and you see someone judged, given over by God. And that is John chapter 12. All right, well... I think, given this topic, I thought it would be good to talk about what's been happening this past week in the media and in politics. Uh, For those of my listeners who are not in Australia, let me catch you up a bit about what's been happening here. Um, Last year, we had a national survey on whether to legalise same-sex marriage or not. 
Uh, and the survey came back with an overwhelming yes, uh, which was no real surprise. And so since then, uh, Australia has legalised same-sex marriage. Uh, but one of the things that the No campaign worked really hard on was framing the debate so people were asking questions about whether legalising same-sex marriage would have an impact on religious freedoms. Uh, and as a result of that, the government commissioned a report by Philip Ruddock to look into religious freedom in Australia uh, in light of the change legislation around same-sex marriage. Um, now, the report hasn't actually come out yet, but one uh, small part of the report was leaked. And this part of the report showed that our current law exempts religious schools uh, from certain discrimination laws. And kind of the, you know, the the main thing that was drawn out of this by the media was uh, it means that religious schools are allowed to expel students on the basis of their sexuality. Now, it's important to understand all the report said was this was current law, uh, but that's not how the media spun it. Uh, there was sort of outrage and horror all round, and basically the media was saying this is, this is outrageous. The Ruddock report is saying that Christian schools should expel gay kids. And that's, that's basically how it got played out in the media. And then there were call-ins on radio and people, you know, from the Labor Party coming uh, on TV saying how outrageous this is and how terrible this is and how we need to stop these mean old Christians from expelling all these poor gay kids. Um, now, that is not actually what was going on. It was just a huge amount of hype. Uh, that was that was spun, uh, and, it, and it was really bad, actually. It was really bad the way the media behaved. Uh, if you get a chance, you should go over to Stephen McAlpine's blog. He's been running a few good articles on this issue over the past few days. And if you're interested in some of the more legal details around this, uh, check out Professor, uh, Professor of Law Neil Foster's blog. Uh, I think the website is lawandreligionaustralia.blog. Uh, he gives you a lot of the legal background behind this debate. Okay, so... The media kind of spun out of control and, and went super hyper crazy over this and just went into outrage mode, um, saying that, you know, Christian schools want to expel gay kids. Uh, the reality is it's much less exciting than that. Okay? The law is an existing law. It's not a new law that's being introduced. And even more importantly, this is not something that's actually happening. Okay? No, uh, no Anglican school has expelled a kid for being gay. Okay, It's not something that's happened. It's just something that's been hyped up. Uh, and the reason for it is really to try and discredit this report on religious freedoms. Um, Synod has met for the Anglican Church in Sydney this past week, and Archbishop Glenn Davies actually spoke on this issue in his presidential address, uh, and I think he did a pretty good job. So um, I'm just going to play a little bit of, uh, of this clip from his presidential address, and you can hear uh, what his response was to this kind of media hype uh, these past few days. In this past week, the enemies of religious freedom have been hard at work. The selective and distorted leaking of the recommendations of the Ruddock Review has been nothing more than anti-religious activism masquerading as journalism. This week has exposed the hypocrisy of those who, during the same-sex marriage campaign, repeatedly told the Australian public that same-sex marriage would have absolutely no consequences for religious freedom. Now they have revealed what has already always been on their agenda, to force religious schools to play by secular rules. Although I'm wary of commenting upon a report that is yet to be released, the Ruddock Review, 
after a careful and thorough analysis and extensive public consultation, has proposed a set of sensible recommendations to ensure that Australia protects all human rights, including freedom of religion. There is, in fact, nothing objectable in the Ruddock recommendations, as leaked, but in an attempt to scupper the Ruddock ship while it's still in the docks, its recommendations were mischievously misrepresented. They ensued, then ensued hand-wringing hysteria about an imaginary epidemic of gay students being expelled from religious schools. And this was accompanied by much ill-informed knee-jerk reaction. Let's be very clear. Anglican schools in Sydney do not expel students for being gay. It is an absurd proposition. And it is certainly not something we ask for in our submission to the Ruddock Review. We would gladly support any amendment to the Sex Discrimination Act 1984 which would clarify this. This issue was nothing more than a beat-up and smokescreen to discredit the Ruddock Report and to obscure the real issues. What we have asked for is simply this. Freedom of religion. People of all faiths and none should have the right to speak and act according to their fundamental convictions. Church schools should not be forced to play by secular rules. It goes to the very heart of religious freedom that religious organisations should be able to operate according to their religious ethos. Anglican schools, if they are going to remain Anglican, must be able to employ staff who support the Christian values of the school. When the Ruddock Report and the Government's response is released, it will be time to have an informed national conversation about this. Despite the delay in its release, the report deserves due process and careful analysis before it is kiboshed by the media and ill-informed political commentators. Yet our real weapons are not political or strategic, however much we may engage in the national debate, but spiritual, requiring the whole armour of God. For it is ultimately the gospel that will change people's hearts and minds. We must never forget that. Even when Christianity is in the process of being marginalised in our society. Okay, so that was uh, Glenn Davies speaking to Synod uh, the other day. Um, and, you know, yeah, I, I think uh, the Archbishop is absolutely right. It, it was a total beat-up. Um, I think there were sort of two main political reasons uh, that people were pushing this line. Uh, the first is, is there's a by-election in the seat of Wentworth, which is uh, it's a Liberal seat, Conservative seat, uh, but it also strongly supports same-sex marriage, and so Labor is trying to use this to drive a wedge between the um, seat of Wentworth and, and, and the Liberal Party. Uh, but the second reason is, as Glenn Davies said, people want to discredit the report, the Ruddock report, uh, before it's even published, uh, because they're out to remove religious freedoms. Uh, and so all those people, uh, I think Glenn Davies was spot on in this, okay? It, it, this is exposing the hypocrisy of all those people who said during the same-sex marriage debate, look, this has nothing to do with religious freedoms. Religious freedoms won't be impacted. This is simple yes or no whether people can get married. Why are you making a big stink about religious freedoms? Yeah, they were lying, okay? They were flat-out lying. Uh, and it's always been a, a, a dishonest 
piecemeal approach uh, with with, uh, with the gay lobby uh, in Australia. Okay, it's it's been a softly, softly strategy. Uh, the next target on the gay lobby's list are religious institutions. Uh, they're not going to go after churches. That's too obvious. That's like probably fifty years down the track or something. What they're going to do is they're going to go after religious institutions like schools, charities, adoption agencies. Um, and and it's quite clever what's happened. The easiest target to go for first is the straw man, the one that no one's actually arguing for, and that is the idea that kids could be expelled uh, from, a, from a Christian school for being gay. Um, and, you know, of course, you hear that and you get outraged. This is crazy. How could we allow this? But within a week, within a week of all this hysteria in the media, uh, the conversation was slowly shifting. And, and people in the media were saying, ah, but what about teachers then? And the ABC were interviewing teachers in Anglican schools that said, you know, many of them were remaining in the closet for fear of being fired and, and all this kind of thing, because that's the real next target, okay? Um, they want to make sure that Christian schools can't choose uh, to employ an openly gay, or to not employ an openly gay person, uh, which, you know, as Glenn Davy says, that's ridiculous, because if we want a school to be Christian, uh, they need to be run by people who, you know, a Christian, actively Christian, living out their faith. Um, and this this is even more important now because now that state schools uh, are going to be pushing, you know, Purple Day more and, and painting every kid rainbow, uh, more and more Christians are going to want to send their kids to Christian schools. Uh, and and um, they're going to want to know that, well, at the Christian school, are we at least going to be able to raise kids uh, in the Christian faith? And I, I think it's a real shame. I think it's a shame that more Christian families are going to be sending their kids to Christian schools rather than state schools. But, you know, I, I totally get it. I mean, do you want your boy's year four teacher telling the class that he's gay and that that's awesome? Or, or do you want your year eight girl told by everyone, including her teacher, that she's a bigot because of her Christian views? I, I don't want that for my kids. Um, but that's what's going to happen. You know, I, I used to live in Newtown uh, where I studied at Moore Theological College. And, and Newtown, if you don't know it, it's, it's sort of an inner city, very green, very left, very driven by the LGBTI uh, agenda. Uh, it's actually a pretty funny place to have a bunch of conservative Christians living as well. Uh, and I remember, you know, this was like seven years ago. So a lot has happened even since then. But even seven years ago, I remember one of my mates having to work out, you know, do I send my kid uh, to school on Purple Day? Uh, because, you know, he's going to be the only kid there that's not wearing purple and they'll be bullying and that kind of thing. And, and there were, there were families... Uh, Christian families that went to our college whose kids were getting bullied because of what they believed. And this is why it's important for Christians now um, to be standing up for the rights of Christian schools to remain Christian. Uh, and, and I think Glenn Davis is, is spot on about this. But the big thing that we need to remember in all of this uh, is what Glenn Davis said right at the end. Um, l- let me read out to you what he said. He said, yet our real weapons are not political or strategic Uh, however much we might engage in the national debate, but spiritual, requiring the whole armour of God. For it is ultimately the gospel that will change people's hearts and minds. We must never forget that, even when Christianity is in the process of being marginalised in our society. And, I mean, spot on. And, and, And that's what we've been reminded of in John 12, right? You know, the problem with our society, with our culture, with our enemies, it's, it's not an intellectual problem. It's not a political or strategic problem. It's not a social problem. It's not a cultural problem. It's a spiritual problem. They won't believe. They refuse to believe. 
And we really need to have this paradigm shift in the way that we view our world, and in particular in the way that we view those who oppose Christ. That behind all the sort of moral indignation and outrage, behind all the sound bites on ABC and the Facebook debates, behind all the political speeches and grassroots activism, behind all of that is a simple refusal to believe in the one that God has sent. That's what's really going on here. You know, it's so easy to think, oh, if I could just explain it clearly to this person, you know, then they'd understand and agree with me and see where I'm coming from. Or, you know, if I could just be winsome enough or clever enough or nice enough to the right people, then they'd respect me and I'd get a hearing. Or, oh, if, if we just organized enough or mobilized our people or, or got the right connections with the right politicians, then, then we wouldn't need to be afraid and wouldn't need to be opposed like this. Now, I'm not saying don't explain things clearly. I'm not saying don't be nice. I'm not even saying don't get involved in our democratic system. All good things to do. I'm just saying that's not what's going to change things. That's not what's going to, that's not what is going to change hearts and minds because that's not what's actually driving people uh, who oppose us. It's a spiritual problem. They simply don't want to believe in Jesus. And so they won't. Uh, In his article on this issue, Stephen McAlpine suggested that The reason people were so quick to jump on the outrage bandwagon, despite there being no facts, uh, was because now in politics we think in absolute terms of good versus evil. Uh, So we view our opponents as evil. And because they're evil, we're not going to bother to hear them out. We're not going to bother to think of things from their point of view. And so we simply sum them up as evil and then dismiss everything they say and condemn them utterly. Now, I I think there's actually a lot of truth there and and a lot of wisdom in, in how we engage in debate. But I actually think there's a deeper truth behind why this outrage is happening. And that is that people do this because they are evil. You know, we we all are. I'm not trying to say, you know, those baddies out there are evil and we're good. No, no, no. We are all evil. And in our natural evil state, we don't want to listen to, we don't want to accept, we don't want to obey Jesus. And so we won't. We refuse. We suppress the truth in our wickedness. Okay, want to know why people do this stuff? It's because they're evil. It's because they hate God. And you know what? You're like that too, but for the grace of God. Okay, I'm not trying to say we're better than anyone else here. We're not. That's exactly what we were like. We too once walked in this way. We too were once dead in our sins, you know. And so if we really want to understand what's going on in our world when we see this sort of opposition, go to John 12. They won't. It is an active opposition to Christ because we don't want to believe in him. But again, just like John 12, there's another way to look at this as well. And, and I think this is something we almost never do. Remember John 12 is not just that they would not believe, but they could not believe. So what should our reaction be to a culture that has so blindly rejected Christ, that has such a hard heart that they are running full steam ahead in the complete opposite, opposite direction to God, that they are gleefully tearing down every last bit of Christianity's influence on the West for the past 2,000 years. How, how do we understand that? How do we see that? What should our reaction be? Well, we should see this is judgment. Okay? This is judgment on Sydney. This is judgment on the West. It's judgment on a culture that has for so long heard the voice of the Lord and rejected it. And when we look at people so wildly and irrationally opposing what Christ has taught, our reaction shouldn't be, you know, one of being scared. We should be sad because we're seeing God's judgment 
right in front of us. I mean, can you think of a better explanation and description of Sydney in 2018 than this? He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. I don't say this gleefully. I don't say this in a happy way. It's, It's tragic. It's sad. But we are witnessing the deserved judgment of God on our city, on our culture, as we see them so willfully um, reject Jesus and, and not believe him. But of course, you know, it's not, not all is lost. There is hope because Jesus still holds out the gospel truth and there are still believers. And whilst our culture might be going to hell in a handbasket, I have no hope for our culture. Uh, God has people in this city that belong to him. You know, that's what God told Paul. There are many people that are mine in this city. God has people in this city that belong to him, people that he will have mercy on, even though they don't deserve it, just like you and me. He'll open their eyes. He'll soften their hearts. People who will see and understand and turn and be healed. And so that's our job. Our job is to go out, proclaim the gospel, pray that God would have mercy, just as he's had mercy on us. Okay, we better finish off. Signs of grace. I was on holidays these past two weeks, uh, and it was a bit of a staycation, actually. We went away for a few days, but it was mostly staying home, cleaning up the house, getting ready for our baby, uh, who is coming in three weeks' time, God willing, um, and then doing a few little day trips as well. And one of the things that we did uh, was we took our kids to a Colin Buchanan concert. Now, if you don't know, if, again, if you're not in Australia, you don't know who Colin is. Uh, he's by far the greatest Christian kids entertainer in Australia, nay, the world. Okay, he's awesome. Uh, he's a bit of an institution here. Uh, and he's been doing it for a while now. And my kids love listening to his songs. And at the concert, they were selling his new album, which we've been listening to a lot as a family, uh, and it's called Fam Bam Bible Jam. And, and it's, it is such a great album. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's got heaps of songs about God's word. But also, and this is what I really love about it, it's designed to teach kids and parents how to do a family Bible time together. And it's really, you know, there's sort of a, one of the clips on it is Colin talking to the puppet nudge about how to do a fan band Bible jam. And he says, look, there's three things that you do. Read a bit of the Bible, have a little chat, pray to God. And, and that's it. And, uh, and you know, I just think I love it. It's, it's simple, but it's a great album because it's encouraging uh, families to, get, to get, get amongst it and to do this with their kids. And, you know, this is what we do with our kids each night. Um, we actually throw in a fourth. We sing two Colin songs after, uh, after that. Um, and this is a sign of grace that I wanted to talk about today. I, I've already talked about Colin before, so I won't talk about him as the sign of grace. But the sign of grace I want to talk about is God's grace uh, to my kids uh, as they do their fan band Bible jam, God's mercy um, and grace. Because it, it's been amazing over the past four years to see how God has been graciously at work in them as they've heard from his word, as they've prayed, as they've sang songs to him. And, you know, the thing that I'm just always blown away by is how much 
uh, our kids, uh, what our kids are capable of. You know, I, I always underestimate kids. And I think as I'm having kids now, I'm starting to say, whoa, I didn't realize a four-year-old could do that. Or I didn't realize a two-year-old was capable of that. You know, our, our little girl, she's not even two, but she's singing along to my God is so big. And, and she prays before bed. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's pretty simple, but, you know, she'll say, thank you, God, mommy, daddy, Amen. You know, and that, that's her prayer, but still, that, that's pretty awesome, right? And, um, and so th- there's a real sign of God's grace there, seeing God's grace at work in your kids as you read the word and as you pray with them. And so I, I'd love to encourage you, if, if you have kids uh, of your own, uh, or, or even, you know, if you've got nephews or, or nieces or, or just even kids in your church, you know, do, do a fan band Bible jam. Uh, it's, a, it's a great thing to do with your family. Check out Colin's album. It's called Fan Band Bible Jam. You can buy it on iTunes uh, or go to his website, colinbuchanan.com.au. Um, you can also get it on YouTube and Spotify, but you should buy it uh, to support the ministry. That's really important. Um, so go and check it out. Do a fan band Bible jam with your own family and uh, see uh, God's grace at work in kids. It's very exciting to see. All right, that's it from me. Make sure you subscribe and share this podcast so others can be encouraged by God's word too. Uh, my name's Tom Abib, and you've been listening to The Word Grows. Music.